Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Culture File Weekly, where this time we're pressing our nose as close as the guards will allow to places where Rembrandt put his hand or brush or palette knife or etching needle. This year, museums all over the Netherlands held Rembrandt exhibitions to mark the painter's 350th anniversary. And top of the list was Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum, where all the exceptional holdings of paintings, etchings and sketches were on show in an exhibition called with a nod to our online culture, all the Rembrandts. So this time we're heading to the Rice Museum with Jonathan Bicker, a Canadian-born art historian of Dutch heritage who's found his way back to the land of his ancestors and become a research curator at the museum, as well as the author of a new Rembrandt biography, Rembrandt Biography of a Rebel. The ideal company obs for a walk through the Rice Museum to see all the Rembrandts. What does a, a biography of Rembrandt now need to do? Because there is a colossus of uh, literature on and around Rembrandt. Yeah, it, it was a rather daunting task, actually, to write a, a, a new biography. This is the first biography of Rembrandt that was um, produced by the Rijksmuseum, and, um, and that's, um, that's one of the things that makes this biography different. All of our paintings, we have the largest collection of, uh, of, of paintings and works in general by Rembrandt in the world. The, the wonderful thing about the collection is that you get a, a total overview of Rembrandt's career. So that's why we decided to write a biography, because the collection actually makes that possible. Uh, when, you, when you look at our collection, you, you basically go through Rembrandt's career. How was the Rembrandt you knew at the end of the biography different from the person you, you knew at the, before you started writing? Going into it, of course, I had read all the other biographies, maybe not all the other biographies, but I think he's been kind of portrayed in a, in a very bad light in, in the past. I think I, I view his life and career in, in, in a more sympathetic uh, manner, there is a lot of emphasis on his bankruptcy, for example, and um, and the reasons for the bankruptcy that he, he uh, spent huge amounts of money and was very frivolous with uh, with his money. There's that, and there's also how he uh, interacted with the people who commissioned works from him. He was supposedly very not not very accommodating and very stubborn. There was the expectation of artists at that time that they treat the uh, uh, their patrons as um, as 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 nobility and uh, that they were uh, uh, servants. Um, basically, artists should act as servants. Uh, one of his biographers, early biographers, an Italian, uh, Filippo Baldinucci, says um, that Rembrandt, when he was working and a king would come by, he wouldn't open the door, and uh, and the king would have to come back when Rembrandt was finished working. And I think this was his attitude, but I think that he was justified in having that attitude because what was most important to him was the work, uh, not the person who, uh, who, who commissioned the work. And he wasn't going to uh, kowtow to, uh, to, 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 to patrons. The economy was booming, even though the, uh, the, the war with Spain for independence was still going on. 
actually the D Dutch profited by that because they, uh, they, uh, they blockaded the uh, Scheldt uh, River in Antwerp. So Antwerp, which used to be the big commercial capital, lost that role to Amsterdam. And there was trade with the whole world um, going on in Amsterdam and ships were going sailing everywhere and coming from all over the world, bringing goods into uh, Europe, which were then redistributed throughout Europe. We think, of course, of the Dutch uh, East India Company, and there was also a Dutch West India Company, but there was also trade with Russia, with, um, uh, with uh, the Baltic nations, and uh, with the Mediterranean uh, countries, everywhere you can imagine uh, trade was going on. Especially in Amsterdam, the very the richest citizens, they also formed an oligarchy and controlled the uh, civic uh, politics. They started to mimic the aristocracy in the, uh, in the rest of Europe. And uh, part of that was to have an, an, an amazing art collection. I guess the spendthrift part of it, if, uh, if any of us, all that survived of us, was a list of the things we'd bought, we might look a bit acquisitive. Yes, that's true. But I think, uh, and Rembrandt did um, uh, spend fortunes on, uh, on, on, on his art collection, especially in the 1640s. Uh, Baldinucci, again, he, he tells us that uh, Rembrandt would go into an auction and immediately, if he wanted something, he would immediately place an extremely high bid so that no one else could be able to, uh, to, to buy um, that work of art. This happened in, mostly in the 1640s, and the Dutch economy was at, um, at a high point in the 1640s. And Rembrandt was fabulously wealthy at this point. There was a kind of tulip mania going on, but not for bulbs, but for uh, old, master, old master prints. And, um, and Rembrandt wasn't the only one doing this. And I think he saw it as a kind of, also as a kind of insurance policy that by owning these works, he could resell them if everything went sour. Things did go sour in the 1650s, the, first, the outbreak of the first Anglo-Dutch War in uh, 1652. Uh, the Dutch were the losers, and the uh, Dutch economy went down the drain, and there was no more demand. The demand for luxury goods, such as paintings and, uh, and prints, uh, uh, just, yeah, the, the, the bottom fell out of the market. Uh, the bubble burst. And that's, that's the real reason why, uh, why uh, Rembrandt got into financial difficulties. In painting, he was considered to not be following the rules of art. Uh, the, the thick, especially in his late work, the thick impasto passages of paint were criticized by critics and his methods of making texture in his paintings. Um, and his contemporaries thought that this was uh, when it went against the rules of art because in art you were supposed to make three-dimensional objects look three-dimensional on a two-dimensional surface. A painter wasn't a sculptor. You weren't, you're not supposed to make sculpture. You're supposed to make paintings. Rembrandt uh, was a nonconformist. He, he went his own way. He was accused by his contemporaries already of uh, breaking their rules of art. 
for example, instead of uh, showing beautiful young women in his paintings, he would choose to depict old, uh, wrinkled men and women. And, uh, and he saw this as a, as a wonderful playing field to, uh, to experiment with uh, effects of light and dark in his painting. So he made, uh, he was basically showing that from uh, an ugly subject, you can make beautiful art. Museum, and I'm one of the curators of this exhibition, All the Rembrandts. So this is called the Philips Wing, and this is our exhibition wing of the uh, museum. And here we start the exhibition, All the Rembrandts, with a gallery with his self-portraits, because that's where we started, with his own face. He's practicing in front of the mirror on his own face, because of who is better, cheaper, and more... Um, relevant to, pay, to portrait first is yourself and then we did the, all the different um, people around him so we start with his family, his mother his father and then we go out on the streets in Leiden where he started painting beggars and street life and street musicians and then we are going into his house so with the drawing of Saskia and Bed we refer to and from there on, we will go to his portrait paintings and the landscapes that he made. And we were walking around with him through and around Amsterdam. And from there, we start with the stories from the Bible. So he's more, um, he's more as a storyteller. So at first, it's more about the Rembrandt, the observer. And then the second part of the exhibition is more about Rembrandt, the storyteller. Maybe it's nice to have a look at uh, what we use as a campaign image. Did you see the big self-portrait on the outside? It's, it's on, on the outside of the museum and 60 metres high, maybe. <laughs> it's pretty big and it's blue. Um, it's an etching of uh, his, his head with a, a cap on and he has a moustache and his hairs are in the wind. And um, in real life, it's three centimetres high. So we used it to, made, to make a really big statement on our building, of course, and we made it blue so to make Rembrandt more contemporary again. But in real life, it's black, three centimeters high, and it's really tiny. And people are asking me all the time, where is the blue Rembrandt? But it's not blue. And it's right over there. <laughs> but uh, that says also something to the quality of the etching, that you can blow it up to that size and, yes. and still have a desirable image. So we'll just have a look at it. <laughs> There's a tiny little postage stamp there. Yes. Of a relatively content Rembrandt, I think. Does this tiny image look like uh, Rembrandt as a rebel to you? rebel fancier <laughs> no I think I think these ones here on the left are uh, actually more <laughs> rebellious <laughs> hair wise he's, he's, anyway he's and one of them he looks really mad he was uh, he was uh, practicing uh, different emotions again in front of the mirror um, which he would then um, could use in his history paintings 
there's an idea that people often talk about when talking about Shakespeare, that he emerges at a time when we're beginning to kind of recognise the subject individuals in a particular way, and they often, in the English language anyway, Shakespeare is often credited with producing the, the modern idea of the subject. Round here... Rembrandt almost has that role, as, that he had a particular way of talking about human subjectivity. Yes, I, I like to think of Rembrandt actually as the inventor of intimacy, uh, especially in his drawings. Uh, you can see this, there are a number of drawings in the uh, exhibition, also a few uh, etchings that show his wife, uh, Saskia Aulenberg, uh, in bed. Uh, she's obviously um, either just given birth to a child or um, is about to uh, uh, give birth to. They're very intimate uh, portraits. No artist had ever done this before. Rembrandt's ambition was to be the greatest history painter in the history of art. And a uh, history painter is a painter of biblical scenes or mythological scenes. This genre was the highest in the pecking order at the time. And in order to be the best history painter, you had to be able to depict the emotions, or what was called the, at the time the passions of the soul. And Rembrandt did this better than anyone else, and there's not an emotion that he did not depict. The reason why they, uh, he's the master at painting the emotions is because he approached it in a naturalistic way. There were conventions for how you should depict certain emotions, and uh, Rembrandt does away with that, and instead he looks at the world around him. For example, his, uh, his wife Saskia in bed when she's in, uh, um, about to give, uh, give birth, and, uh, and uses that, draws on that, and then puts that in his history paintings. And I think that's the reason why Rembrandt is still relevant to this day, because... Emotions, of course, are, are universal. Emotions are the things that define us as human beings. So by experiencing Rembrandt's art, we experience our own humanity. The thing that the self-portraits have mostly in common is the way they regard you looking at him. Yeah, he, he almost looks like a detective, like a private eye who's examining us, and, he's, uh, and, and it looks like he's holding, at first sight, that he's holding a pen, uh, and he's writing down on, on, the, on the block of paper in front of him, he's writing down our testimony, uh, and he's looking at us quite seriously, and he's kind of intimidating. But, of course, what he's actually doing is examining himself uh, in the mirror, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he has an etching plate in front of him, uh, and he's making the etching as we look at him in an etching. And, but, but he is looking really stern, and it's almost as if he's... Um, yeah, he's, he, he is a private, uh, de private eye, he, um, a detective, 
but he's not interrogating us. He's interrogating himself. going into the uh, the room with the uh, the histories so the biblical paintings and the uh, mythological subjects my two favorite paintings are actually in this room on the one wall we have the the early uh, Jeremiah contemplating the destruction of uh, Jerusalem he has this vision and I think it's amazing because it's uh, you actually see the vision you, you creep into his head I think this is Rembrandt's first masterpiece. It was done in 1630, and the figure is very detailed and very finely painted. And then there's a zone around the painting um, where you see a landscape and then a view through an archway, and there you see the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jeremiah prophesied. So we're, we're actually looking at his prophecy we're not looking at the actual destruction, but we're looking at Jeremiah's uh, prophecy of it. And that very abstract bit of landscape there, yeah, that, uh, I think that we're, we're creeping into his mind, if you were. We're entering Jeremiah's uh, uh, mind and, and thoughts. It's a mist, really, that, that's emanating from him. There's some garments and some dishes in the front, and they all have that kind of intensity of, uh, of a still life or something. But then the, the picture just sort of disintegrates behind him. Yeah, yeah. One of the techniques Rembrandt used in this painting is uh, scratching into the wet paint, possibly with the butt end of, uh, of the brush, the paintbrush, or um, I think in some instances he did this with an etching needle. Um, and you can see it on the green jacket that he's worn. There's uh, gold embroidery. First, he painted a, a layer of yellow, gold yellow, and then he painted green over top of that. And then while the green was still wet, he scratched into it, um, so that exposing that yellow underlayer. And that's how he made the, uh, the embroidery there. So it's also very interesting because the embroidery is a positive and then it sticks out. Um, but by scratching it, he makes it a negative. I always find that very fascinating with Rembrandt. Um, for example, that in a, in a painting, in one of his self-portraits, there's only, he only scratches once into the painting to create a wrinkle in, uh, in his eyelid. Um, and, yeah, are, are we supposed to perceive that as an actual wrinkle I wonder if Rembrandt thought it worked that way, and I wonder actually if it does work that way, if we can actually experience that in that way. Rembrandt had three methods for creating texture. One of them was scratching into the wet paint. Another one was actually modeling with paint as if it were very thick paint, as if it were clay. Both of those techniques he used already at the onset of his career. Uh, but then in his later career, he added a third one, which he invented, and that was the use of the palette knife. The palette knife is traditionally used and still used to mix paint on the palette, but Rembrandt actually used it to apply the paint to the canvas. And the most spectacular example of that is uh, in the, uh, the so-called Jewish Bride uh, where all three of these techniques are employed by Rembrandt. You can see in uh, The Man 
Isaac. You can see in his uh, uh, jerkin and the cape these very fine zigzag lines and straight lines. I think those were definitely done with an etching needle. Uh, and then you can see the palette knife, for example. Can, the, the, the square rectangular shapes of the palette knife can be seen on Isaac's sleeve um, and also in the dress of the woman, uh, Rebecca. Uh, if you get up close, you can see these uh, rectangular markings left by the, the palette knife. And then that sleeve itself, Isaac's sleeve, is the thickest passage of paint in any 17th century painting, not just in Holland, but everywhere in Europe. You would have to wait until the 19th century to get paint that is as thick as this. You do get the sense that it, it might just slide off the canvas. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, Arnold Haubrach and one of Rembrandt's early biographers, early 18th century, uh, and didn't approve of this thick uh, use of thick paint. So he makes fun of uh, Rembrandt by saying that um, he painted a portrait that was so thickly painted that you could pick it up off the ground by the figure's nose. <laughs> and I wonder if we laid this on the ground, not that we're going to do this, but if you laid this on the ground, if you could actually pick it up by the sleeve. And Rembrandt makes that sleeve appear even more thick by um, contrasting it with the, uh, the figure's collar. When you, when you paint a painting, at least in the 17th century, the, the first thing that would be done would, would be to put a ground layer, so one, a single thin layer over the entire painting. And Rembrandt leaves that ground layer exposed in Isaac's collar, and that's very close to the sleeve. So you go from zero to 100% in, in just over 10 or, or 20 centimeters. So it's that contrast of the, the flattest um, part of the painting with the thickest part of the painting so in close proximity, which makes that sleeve stand out even more. And then, of course, the, 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 these clods of uh, thick paint reflect the light, so it, it's almost as if the sleeve is actually made out of gold, gold that you can actually touch uh, and feel. And that's all talking about the technical means of what we're looking at, but actually what strikes you is this incredible sense we've come upon these people and they weren't expecting us, and, and there's a moment that they should only really be sharing between themselves. Yeah, this is the most intimate portrait, probably a portrait of a Dutch couple in the guise of the biblical figures Isaac and Rebecca. It definitely wasn't Rembrandt himself and his, uh, and his lover, Hendrikje Stoffels, but on, in, 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 in a certain way, it was, actually. Um, this, this painting was probably done around 1665. Um, Hendrikje had died of the plague in 1663. She was the great love of Rembrandt's uh, late life. Rembrandt must have thought of himself and his dead lover uh, when he was working on it. And I think that he drew on that experience, wittingly or not, to make the greatest painted ode to love in the history of painting. Vincent van Gogh, um, after he first saw the, uh, th this painting, he, 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 couldn't, he didn't want to leave the museum. He wanted to stand in front of this forever, and, and, uh, and he wrote to his brother uh, Theo that it was the most intimate, the most tender um, painting he had ever seen. Uh, he said that he would willingly, he was a real drama queen, he said he, would he was willing to give up 10 years of his life to sit in front of this painting 
for, uh, for a fortnight with nothing to eat except for a dry crust of bread. <laughs> but I think it's remarkable that, that Vincent van Gogh reacted in this way because this is, this is a, a spectacular technical achievement. But Van Gogh doesn't say anything about that. What, 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 he was moved by the painting. It was, it's the subject and how Rembrandt handled the subject that, uh, that affected him and not how it was painted, actually. Yeah. a bit cheesy, but I start my book with, um, with a scene out from Rembrandt's life um, uh, a couple of days after he died. His, uh, his daughter-in-law barges into his house and says, where's the money? <laughs> and then she's told, oh, there's no money, because Rembrandt had been using uh, the money that uh, his daughter, his only daughter, uh, Cornelia, had inherited from uh, her mother. He had been using that to pay the bills. And he, was, and he swore every time that he took her money and paid the bills that he would repay it as soon as he painted another um, painting. Um, and then, so, yeah, it's really... And Cornelia, that daughter, was only 15 at the time. And uh, she had lost everyone. Her, her mother was dead. Her, her, her half-brother, Titus, had died a year uh, before Rembrandt did. And then, yeah, now her, her father is dead. Um, and then she finds out that he had also been stealing from her. You know, Cornelia only lived, only experienced those the, the last years of Rembrandt's career when things weren't going well, uh, financially at any rate. And I wonder if Rembrandt ever went with her and showed uh, to, uh, to the houses where his paintings hung or to... Uh, to the guild where the, uh, the, the Night Watch hung, for example, to, to, you know, improve his image in his daughter's eyes. So I kind of have this feeling that Rembrandt would come back with Cornelia 350 years after his death and come to the Rijksmuseum and would give Cornelia a guided tour uh, of, of this exhibition <laughs> and show, just show her what a great artist he was and, uh, yeah improve uh, his image in, in, in her eyes. But in, yeah, okay, this is really cheesy, but in a way, we are all Rembrandt's children. So. <laughs> I'm feeling it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I kind, of, I, I kind of feel that way. Jonathan Bicker there at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, where you still can, of course, see a lot of the Rembrandts. Bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly, Tote Zines, 